Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Are you worried about democracy? I have to confess, I am a bit worried about democracy. That's why I listen to a wonderful podcast called Democracy Works. It's run by the fabulous people at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. The podcast aims to rise above partisan politics and the daily news grind to take a broader look at issues impacting democracy. These are things we cannot ignore. You can go to www.democracyworkspodcast.com and subscribe in all kinds of ways. Or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. We really love this podcast at the NBN and so much so that we are going to provide you with a little taste of what you can get at Democracy Works. I hope you enjoy the following episode. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy in the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, today we have a uh, really interesting uh, visitor with us. Right. uh, Sergio Popovich is the founder of uh, the Center for Applied Nonviolent Actions and Strategies, or CANVAS. And um, we thought that... uh, this would be not just um, it's an interesting topic because it absolutely is, but it's also um, connects well to some of the things we've already done recently around some um, authoritarian uh, movements, some threats against democracy around the world, like Brazil and Hungary and uh, Brexit. Uh, Sergia was um, a, an important actor in the uh, um, Serbian protests, and that those protests. Um, were very, very deliberate and thoughtful and creative and um, had some impact, and that now he's put together this book, Blueprint for Revolution, that kind of lays out this thing as a strategy for um, for right. other, you know, um, protesters. Yeah, I sort of read it in the, uh, you know, reminded me of Abby Hoffman's Steal This Book, mm-hmm. right, or uh, Alinsky's book. Right, Alinsky is what I thought of, on, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to protest. But it, but he is, uh, he's doing something interesting here. I mean, most of his focus is on the use of laughter as a tool, mm-hmm. uh, in particular against authoritarians who are particularly well set themselves up, I think, for mockery. Mm-hmm. What strikes me is not just this creativity, but also just how um, deliberate and smart and strategic his work is. Yes, but at root, I think he wants us to be thinking in terms of what I believe he calls laftivism, mm-hmm. right? The idea that humor can be used as an effective, as mm-hmm. an effective mm-hmm. tool. You know, there's some very, very funny stories in this book. Uh, yes, there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, really clever, really clever ideas. Uh, you know, maybe a little less on how effective they really are in the end, but it's a long game. Right. And so anything that you can be doing that starts to make dents in a, dents in a regime or that helps to bring people together is, is important. But I think what's interesting about this, this humor 
is that it is um, a way uh, he sees it not in its on its own right, right? So it's not enough to put you know to to have a funny saying on a protest sign it all is part of a strategy to undermine government yes to mock them right. mm-hmm. to to weaken their support and to, uh, and to, 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 to mobilize to pull, the, pull the curtain back mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes and to mobilize because you know you need you know, Martin Luther King talked about this i think in a different way uh, that you know the importance of protest was not it you don't think of you don't think of humor with the civil rights movement, no. Or yeah, but, or but, Gandhi certainly, or yeah. Gandhi, yes. But there, but there's still a sense of uh, a certain type of uh, solidarity of togetherness that is created in a protest movement. That's important to keep people involved, to keep their energy up, to make them willing to go to jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and humor can be a tool like that. I, I, that's ex- I think that's exactly what he would say. So I think that's enough for us for um, for now. I mean, um, we get a good sense of of, um, of what the issues are, and uh, it'll be. I think you'll find this a very interesting interview. He's an interesting guy and uh, has a has a really interesting background. So, let, without further ado, let's uh, bring in Jenna and Sergio. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Sergio Popovich. Sergio, thanks for joining us today. We are coming up, or actually just past, uh, 20 years since the Atpour movement started, which I'm sure in some respects feels like yesterday for you, but also feels like a lifetime ago. Um, So we have some students here with us in in the room today, so I thought it might be good to start out kind of taking taking us back a little bit. Um, What was the the political climate like in in Serbia when the, the movement got started in the late 90s, and was there anything in particular about that time frame that you thought, oh, this this might be the, the right time to try to act on, on Milosevic? A long time ago in a galaxy far away, <laughs> which is called Serbia, uh, uh, there was a very bad government run by a guy named, with a reason, the Butcher of Balkans, uh, Slobodan Milosevic. And then what, what I normally start talking to my students very often is because at this time we were not interested in politics. We were basically thinking that the activism is for old ladies fighting for dogs' rights. Uh, but uh, we were activists out of necessity. So when your life is falling apart, when your family is getting broke while being a decent middle class due to the hyperinflation, when somebody tells you that you need to get a rifle and kill your neighbor because they're of different ethnicity, uh, then you ultimately have two choices, to fight or to flee. And a large part of generation decided to fight. So we started in 1992 with large students' protests, which looks much of your Occupy. So we were s- occupying campuses and singing uh, hippie songs, and all the intellectuals were there. But we were not able to build to the grassroots and to reach the real constituency that was supporting Milosevic, which was unlike us, not educated, not urban, and had completely different means. 1996-97, the first large street of demonstrations started in Serbia. This is where we figure out that, in fact, we can win local elections if opposition is united, but Milosevic will steal them. And we also spent three months on the streets every day, which is, A, we learned how to talentedly keep people busy, and B, we understood that it's a very stupid way to act, like everyday protests are very costly. Way in 1998, uh, we decided that... Uh, it's time for us to be hobbits and take the ring to Mordor. We decided that the international community can't do anything with Milosevic, that the Serbian opposition is completely incapable to find their own nose uh, most of the days, and that uh, the, it is the group of students that should build the movement. Otpor started in, in late 1998, 
and built from 11 people into several hundreds, then performed uh, large tactics of recruitment and, and uh, grew up up to 70,000, which is for the country of 6 million people really recognizable size. Uh, its trademarks were we knew what we wanted. We had a pretty clear vision of tomorrow. Uh, we built unity among the civil sector and the opposition parties. Uh, we stayed cool and nonviolent. We were focusing on low-risk tactics, and part of the reasons why I'm here at PSU, we used a lot of humor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots lots to, to unpack there. Um, I know in, in your book, Blueprint for Revolution, you, you talk a lot about um, kind of fighting for attention and, and media. And, and, you know, I've, I've heard you say that you would always be thinking in, in the back of your mind about what the picture in, in the newspaper would be the next day. I'm, I'm wondering how how that landscape or how the approach has changed in the, the 20 years since Atpour, you know, now with, with social media, the photos go online you know, instantly, and you might not have as much control over over the the narrative as as you once did. Well, speaking of narrative and social media is is a very interesting part in the twenty first century. Uh, social media makes things faster and cheaper for people to assemble. Uh, social media also gets uh, a great opportunity for people to copy paste. So if there is something done on one part of the country, people can easily grab to it and do it in their own part of the country. Uh, last but not the least importance, and you guys know that because I've just learned coming here that you have extensive online program, uh, social media and internet helps people uh, train people across the distances. This was very important encouragement. However, it's a, it's a same rule. Uh, when we teach people tactics, uh, we very often look at what is the pillar or institution you want to influence and picking and targeting the right pillar is the key. Uh, it was not uh, the, that, that like getting back to civil rights movements, and very often people say, okay, Montgomery bus boycott was all about this uh, super brave lady who decided not to, to stand, but it was not. It was a careful targeting by civil rights activists that were looking at the pillar they can sway, which was the white-operated business, that instead of pillar they can't sway, which was the white pro-segregation mayors and governors. And they were looking, by looking at the Sun Tzu, they were looking at the position of their strength. It was the majority of the Afro-Americans using the public transportation. So clever tactics uh, principles didn't change in 20 years. If you want to perform a successful tactics and take a look at the March for Our Lives, it, the first change I've seen in the narrative about the gun control is not coming because these people were particularly clever or bright, That's, but it is because they targeted well. Looking at the Walmart, looking at the Dick Sporting Goods, in order to change rules on how they sell weapons, seems to have more impact on how people can access to deadly weapons than all the protests and outcries in front of the of the governors and uh, and. Uh, Executive. So one thing that didn't change for a successful tactic, you need to look at the analysis and then you need to look at what you really want to achieve. And the part which probably changed and, and also one photo still talks more than a thousand world. We are we are li- living in the week where the president of Venezuela was happy to destroy the humanitarian aid while dancing samba and kill four people. So all you need is to take a 30 seconds of this and understand what in the world is happening in this country. So the media part is important, but tactics and strategies are so much more. Uh, it's not only about the media, but it's also about whom you're targeting and what you want to achieve. Right. And it, it seems a lot of those kind of 
picking the tactic and and you know moving toward it is is in some ways easier said than done kind of finding finding your coalition bringing people on board people who might have different points of view than you do so you, you mentioned earlier about trying to in your outpour movement bring in rural people or you know people that are, are from different areas I think in in some ways that that same struggle exists in in other countries right now whether it's Hungary or Brazil or these these countries that are fighting this kind of urban rural divide this this national identity type of issue. So what what are some of the, the, the tactics or some of the strategies you recommend for people to build these broader coalitions and, and get people to come on board with uh, these movements? We, well, very often we start by quoting Sun Tzu, uh, who is well known for saying that the, the strategy without tactics is just the wishful thinking, while the tactics without the strategy are just the noise before the defeat. And before tactics and strategy, the vision comes in. So the first thing is you need to understand what you really want to change. Uh, we see nonviolent struggle as a warfare between the status quo forces and the change forces. And within this war- warfare, we start by quoting Sun Tzu, know yourself, know your opponent, and know the terrain. So first thing you're looking at is the terrain. What is what we call the spectrum of allies? What are the constituencies you need to sway in order to get change. Once again, getting back to the American history, very good way to spend three hours is to taking a look at the old Hollywood blockbuster called Milk. And it was not when Milk uh, uh, united all the LGBT people for change. It was when he figured out that he needs straight people and how to approach straight people and started listening to what was really important for him to get elected for the council of San Francisco and uh, to the shock of a lot of my of my of my fellow LGBT activists that I know across the world it was the dog's poop so the people care more about the dog's poop in this town and the moment he shifted the narrative from oh the LGBT people are oppressed into the narrative of saying where the gay or straight I am the per- person who is going to curtail you for what you care the most which is such a thing like a dog's poop he got elected so when you take a look at how you are looking at the spectrum of allies, how you try to listen, how you try to find the smallest common denominator that will bring groups to your side, and then how you craft your strategy and your tactics from it. So if you would be attending our workshops or one of our classes, you'll spend first 48 hours really thinking about the battlefield and the change and why the people who are pro-change, pro-change, why the people who are against the change, against the change. And you will just look at where the real numbers are, and the most of the numbers are in the mainstream. So successful movements build from a very active extreme. And when you take a look at the environmental movement, for example, in 50s and 60s, the bunch of crazy hippies tying themselves for the for defenses of nuclear power plant. Now you're looking at the movement, which, you know, comes from all parts of society, gets a lot of the young people, gets a lot of the state institutions. So how do you build your relatively small group into something that becomes a mainstream should be the very... A proper part of the successful movement strategy. Sure. And so what happens when, as these movements grow, people come in and have their own ideas about what they want to do and maybe try to take things in, in a different direction? How do you kind of be receptive to their their ideas and, and their opinions and their thoughts, but without curtailing the, the main goal you're trying to work toward? Well, first of all, I think uh, what is what is really important is to figure out what is the, the, the grand vision and the grand goal. And when you work in a successful movement that organically grows, you want to make people aware of the, the, what this change is the moment they step in. On the other hand, uh, people power movements are driven by the people, which means that the best thing that people bring to the movements are their ideas. So how do you make the balance between the grand goal and the 
opportunities for people to get their ideas exercised. Uh, in There is no an ideal case of the movement. Every different struggle requires different organization. But the way the Serbian movement operated and several other movements we worked in in the past, like Egyptian movement, was to make a highly decentralized structure, which is very clear about the vision, the strategy, but leaves the local branches to work on what they think makes the most matter. That A, makes movement closer to the people because it works on something that really matters to the people in a small place, and B, more important, creates the culture in the movement where everybody can become a leader. The more leaders you have in the movement, the less narrow leadership, the more it's likely that people will get into it from the point of enthusiasm. Uh, This is US, we often use corporate language. You don't want followers, you don't want soldiers. You want stakeholders. This is what you want when it comes to the successful movements. Right. And you, you also write uh, in, in your book about the, the, the greatest fear is the fear of the unknown. And, and you, you know, you talk about it in respect to the, the activists themselves. I, I thought it was brilliant how you you and your, your colleagues made detailed notes about what it was like to, to be arrested and you know, be in jail. But I think that that fear of the unknown also applies to the the ordinary citizen, so to speak, there's this big push of like nostalgia based arguments, right? You know, make America great again, take our country back in, in England. So how do you push forward for social change given this prevalence of, of nostalgia or the kind of the, the kind of appeal that those arguments have? Well, I mean, the, when you take a look at the biggest obstacles uh, to the social change of any kind, uh, it's either apathy or fear. And if you really want to make a change, you want to deconstruct these these obstacles. Uh, with apathy, obviously, the vision work, the hope work, the sense of purpose work, but also the small things that improve people's lives, which we call the small victories, work. So with apathy uh, is also more, more related to the less autocratic spaces. And the key for change in this case is, is to turn apathy into enthusiasm. Fear, however, is related to the, to the uh, uh, situations in which you have a culture of fear and then the people are afraid of their governments or people are afraid of change for any means. And we spend a lot of years on, uh, trying to figure out how to deconstruct this fear. So what's behind this fear? What are the organic parts of this fear? And how you can still be afraid but not be paralyzed by the detrimental effects of fear, because the fear is very natural. It's embedded mechanism. I'm a, I have an MA in biology myself, so you learn about the fear. And fear also gives you adrenaline, which is a very useful thing in the, in the nonviolent struggle. Uh, we, we just finished editing our, our little manual called MOB, which is Make Oppression Backfire, which looks at the portions of oppression. So how do you learn about oppression? How do you debrief people what really happens under the oppression? How do you make people supported through the process of oppression? It's a very different thing whether you get arrested and you disappear or there are 100 people in front of the police station yelling for you to be got out, your family is there, you get a free lawyer. If you know you will be supported, you're more likely to take risk and it's in a human's nature. So also a very impressive cases from Egypt and Iran during the Islamic revolution. What happens when somebody gets killed? Are these people buried in the dust and forgotten and the whole villages are afraid or have tens of thousands of people celebrating them as marchers? So all of these techniques are part of what we call the making oppression backfire. The main key of making oppression backfire is to understand your opponent is losing using oppression to the extent where the price tag is not too high. You want to make a price tag of the oppression as high so your opponent gives up making oppression. 
in Serbia with more than 2.5 thousand arbitrary arrests in 2000, uh, every single person who would go to jail would come out as a hero. So what happened was well, it was produced more dissent and more dissent and more dissent. At the end of the day, in the same time, we were working on the police pillar, trying to persuade them that, you know, this is stupid. You guys wear uniforms to chase drug dealers, not the high school kids who wear the certain T-shirts. So in the same time, you're working on the oppressive pillars, but you're creating a culture in which oppression doesn't actually work. So there were many cases in the past where you can really overcome fear and how you do build around this fear. And the best way to do it is to understand that your main obstacle is either fear or the apathy, and you start working on this culture of defying fear or breaking down the apathy. Right. And um, how do you how do you keep people motivated? You know, these movements take a long time. I think in, you know, we live in a very instant gratification culture right now. So how do you get people to kind of see the, the long view or you know, take that long view? Well, having a long view while, while having the small tangible victories is, is the key. And probably uh, every, every uh, decent social scientist in in U.S. can answer you this question coming from, a, from a Rules for Radicals, the amazing book by, by Saul Alinsky. And he says there are like three big things that you need to know in this theory of, of change. One is anger. When people get angry, they can, can electrify it very easily. But anger without hope is a destructive force per se. So you need to give them alternative and use this anger, channel this anger towards the hope. The second part of it, it's also the small victories. Very often movements are, are focused on big showdowns, uh, march of millions, a climate change march, movements march. Uh, the, these are very useful to show numbers. But what you really need to do is take a look at how you build a grassroots organization within these waves of mobilization. So the mobilization comes in waves, but the organization should be looking like stairs. So one step in a time, you're building more and more of the organization. So when you build this organization, they are, they are capable of doing the small tactics. The small tactics produce small victories. The small victories communicated throughout the movement are looking at it and they're saying, okay, we have this large Empire State building to cut 140 floors, but we are going to do it one step at a time. Sure, and and I, I think in your case, using humor kind of keeps people motivated. Um, can you talk a little bit about the what it is in, in particular about laftivism, as, as as you've referred to it, that makes it such an, an effective tactic for these these authoritarian type of regimes? There are like three reasons why humor is is so uh, powerful. Uh, uh, first reason is is uh, Humor breaks fear. If you are preparing for a surgery, the last thing you want to hear is what in the world they're going to do in your stomach. I've been to surgery two weeks ago, and then when doctors started to explain to me, it's like, like I don't need to know everything, you know? And and where where my wife came and broke a joke, and immediately I felt I felt uh, good. A second a second reason second reason is that uh, humor humor attracts people. So. Think about the boring party where nobody's having fun. Immediately a prankster can, comes in and turns it into a very powerful party. People love being around people who are funny. And people love being around the groups that do something funny. And this is why the humor makes things cool. And the cool of the movements is also a very uh, uh, attractive factor because people love to be cool. They love to be around cool things. They love to be involved in a cool stuff. Uh, last and probably the most uh, discriminative element of laftivism comparing to the John Stewart type of satire, it's a conscious tactic. So when you take one step back, you're looking at what you're going to do, but you're also looking at the response. 
So you want to put your opponent between the rock and a hard place. 2011, elections in Russia, Putin would want them with two-third majority, but some of his people were too enthusiastic to get the good results, so they start stuffing ballot boxes. Somebody tapes it, it goes viral, people go on streets. In small places, however, the demonstrations were forbidden. So people came to the idea that if they can't protest, their toys can. So in a small city of Barnaul in Siberia, people build a little Lego town. And then within the Lego town, they come out with a, with a little toys saying free and fair elections, 130% for Putin and things of that kind. And there is an actual footage of this of these events, which you can find online. And you can see that the first day, all 35 people present in the demonstrations and all three and a half policemen, because it's a very small place, had fun. And everybody was taping it and everybody was, t- there was zero attention, like zero attention. And you can see it clearly in a, in a video. But the problem starts when it goes viral. So now I have 700,000 views all over Russia of this within the first few hours. Some of these views are, of course, from, from the Kremlin. And then people there understand that if, this becomes a norm. Everybody is going to to mock the winner of the election all across the Russia. So somebody picks the phone, calls the chief of the police in 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 Barnaul. Uh, the poor soul has to do the most stupid uh, press statement in the history of the world's police, probably quoting that the announced protest of 100 legal toys, 50 uh, toy cars, and 20 toy soldiers is banned because the toys are not citizens of Russia and by the Russian constitution only the citizens of Russia can can uh, can protest they're probably made in China like most of the toys these days now what does it tell you about Putin so the genius of this action is that uh, we are talking about a guy who spends a lot of time posing shirtless wrestling tigers saving dolphins from drowning and he's afraid of toys so now you're hitting the very pillar of the PR of your opponent, but you also start thinking of what else he can do. Because the genius of the dilemma action, which started basically by the Gandhi Salt March, the Gandhi Salt March didn't have the element of humor, but was the first successful strategic dilemma action in the history, at least the documented one in the history of nonviolent struggle. So it puts your opponent between the rock and the hard place if he or she decides to ignore you. That means they're weak. So anybody can do it without being prosecuted. You'll have hundreds of toy protests around Russia. If, however, he or she reacts, uh, looks stupid. Right. Because he's arresting toys, he's you know arresting the petrol barrel, he's banning something really benign and things of that kind. So the genius of loftivism is the combination of dilemma framework together with a little spice of humor. When you do these two things, you can do amazing stuff. Right. So, you know, all these all these tactics are great. People are, you know, being creative and there's certainly lots of lots of attention being raised. But how does that translate into public policy? So the other part of democracy is is institutions. Right. And I know that um, Otpor became its own political party and you served in the, the Serbian uh, National Assembly. Right. So what what was that transition like for you? And you know, how did the, the activism differ from the actual being part of, of, of the government itself? Um, what is really interesting is, A, when you're fighting in a non-democracy, uh, the most vulnerable part of change is actually after the change. And there are statistics showing that it's uh, you're far more likely to mobilize millions of people to get rid of Mubarak's of this world than to build democracy after that. 
And that comes in part because building democracy is far less sexy and attractive than, than mocking the bad guys or, or outrunning the police in the streets. But it also comes from a lack of part of the strategy, which in our, in our, in our teachings and our courses we call surviving victory. So how do you build institutions and how do you maintain these institutions accountable, which is accountability is basically where the movements really come on the top when you have... Uh, the democracy. On the other hand, we are witnessing the world uh, decline of democracy for the 13th consecutive re- year in a row, if you trust Freedom House or Legatum Index. And what happens is that you have a people who come to power democratically, like Orban in, in Hungary or, or, or Kaczynski in Poland, and start stuffing media and courts with their own people. So they think democracy is all about winning elections, and then winner takes it all. And the funny thing is like uh, you need to take a look now at the completely new role of the social movements, which we call defending democracy. So it's actually defending the courts, defending the parliament, defending the pillars that are already there. And I think it's uh, it's also a very interesting psychological thing because I think we owe this backlash of democracy uh, to the mental laziness of the people in established democracies. Because only because you are born in democracy, you get it for granted. And uh, though Ronald Reagan wasn't my favorite American president, I very often quote uh, one of his, my favorite quotes, uh, that says that democracy is only one generation far for extension. And we need to figure out how to keep an active role in defending democracy across the world. Right. So two follow-ups that one do the the tactics change when you're coming from a position of, of, of defending something and then is your organization um, canvas working with people in Hungary or Turkey or Poland or any of these countries that are experiencing democratic erosion uh, the the tactic well first of all the strategy change the direction change because the the way we the way we structure the idea of the strategy in our teachings and we, we teach this in five different universities in Harvard we even use the whole, whole set of case studies the way you need to do it in the academia uh, but basically we're looking at a, at a very different strategic setup uh, and and when you look at the very different strategic setup you're looking at the different pillars so there are pillars that you defend there are pillars that you kind of challenge and when you when you make the setup then it goes to tactics so it's not only about the tactics it's about the shortest causal chain to prevent the ruler to hijack the, the democracy. Sometimes it goes through the free media, sometimes it goes through the demonstrations, sometimes it goes to mass petitions, sometimes it goes by a mass support by the, to the opposition parties. So the, 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 these are the different different courses of action. Uh, Canvas works in, uh, we did a lot of work in non-democratic countries. We recently get a lot of invitations from the, from the places across the, across the, across the democratic world. Uh, we worked with some groups from Poland. We, we've been in touch with some groups in Hungary. Uh, that was a national disaster when I was promoting my book in Hungary. The Minister of, of uh, uh, Interior went on TV and said that the worst offspring of Soros is coming to uh, challenge the good Orban in order to, you know, you can imagine the rest of the narrative. So amazingly, uh, these people get a lot of, of the afraid. Uh, from from this type of knowledge, but that that tells you a lot. The worst authoritarian na- nightmare is actually getting people aware that they have power. Hey, the government is working for you. These people are paid by your taxpayers' money, and instead of being your rulers, there are they should actually be your clerks and employees. And this is where democracy is coming in. This is why this is why 
you had a mandatory course in uh, Russian state universities employed by the Ministry of Defense where they study what we do. So if you would be in a state college in Russia, not a state college in U.S., you will be learning on how to prevent the evil color revolutions. Yes, yeah, so I mean that's that's a whole other other problem. They're trying to break through all of that. So I, I mean, what if you were in that situation? I mean, how would you break through that? Uh, it's a it's an interesting curve, and uh, there is an amazing guy working for for another radio station now, NPR, whose name is Will Dobson, and he wrote a book called Dictators Learning Curve. So you're looking actually at the, how the authoritarians are trying to counter these things, and there are several very interesting parts of this learning curve of course the russians are leading the 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 field in because i think probably because of the most of the resources they they do or a genuine paranoia of what happening in georgia and ukraine will happen in russia but uh, a destroying the narrative of nonviolent change the only reason people are mutiny and protest is because the soros is paying them and then there is a very interesting meme on the on the twitter you can find the uh, two small dogs behind the broken armchair which is torn apart by the dogs obviously and they're hiding behind this armchair and saying Soros so it's like the the, the really funny it's, it's not us it's Soros so it's like we take a look at the actual narrative of uh, the things in Venezuela it's all about the imperialism and the foreign military intervention you if you break it down you are really denying the fact that you have 8 million people in a country that votes for the opposition and maybe they are enough human, enough creative, and enough normal to say it's enough. 3 million refugees, 10 million inflation a year, shortage of toilet paper, super rich party in power. We disagree. So by accepting this Russian type of narrative, you're actually denying people intelligence to really understand in what kind of mess they live and to do something about it. And uh, I think it's amazing how, how clever people, especially in part on the left, are buying on on this, this narrative. So start looking about yourself. What would happen if you would be driving tomorrow, your streets would be falling apart, you can't buy a medicine for your kid, your salary works $3 and it has been working a little bit more, and then you're looking at the president who is dancing samba in the same time. What would you do? You would be waiting for me or Soros to pay you to do something about it, or you would do it yourself. Of course you would do it yourself. So we, we could keep talking about this stuff uh, all day long. You have such a, such a wealth of, of knowledge and experience in this field. I've, I have one last question as we, we bring things to a close here. Uh, what does democracy mean to you? Uh, aside of the, of the, of the, of the uh, basic things like you know human rights, uh, uh, accountability, some kind of basic uh, democratic institutions, I will take a look and define it in two different ways. The academic way is what I've heard on Taft, and there's this little cross in which you have the strong state, uh, strong people, strong state, weak people, which is obviously the, the authoritarian system, weak state, weak people, which is obviously Yemen or the failed state or the weak small state and uh, active people, which is more like Scandinavian countries. So the level to which you have the balance of the strength of the institutions and people who keep these institutions accountable is where I would look to the academic definition of democracy by the virtue of coming from former dictatorship and by the virtue of working with the people from dictatorship. I would say that for me, there are two, two types of places in this world. There are places in which people are afraid of their governments, and these are very unhappy places. And there are people, there are places where governments are afraid 
of their people, which is, I would uh, roughly name democracy. Right. Well, Serja, thank you for, for all of your work in this this topic. We will link to your book, Blueprint for Revolution, and your, your uh, the Canvas organization in our show notes. So uh, thank you for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well, that was a, that was a very interesting interview. Uh, I learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. He's got a he's got a deep body of knowledge well, about protest movements. And he walked the, the walk, world. man. And he he walked got the beat walk. up by uh, by you know secret police in Serbia. You know, yeah. so it's not and and went to jail. So absolutely, we have he to also, take seriously him as a as a witness. Yeah, I mean, he also has a really thoughtful framework around mm-hmm. all this. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a strategy mm-hmm. behind what he's talking about. Really interesting. I was really struck by his discussion about anger, fear, and hope. And, mm-hmm. You know, these are the questions uh, listeners of the show know that uh, Jenna usually asks our guests. I think she mostly asks our American guests uh, to talk about what they're to, – to uh, answer the questions that are part of the Mood of the Nation poll. Mm-hmm. Were you angry about American politics? Were you and one thing that uh, those of us on the poll team have been talking about for a while is the extent to which these various emotions uh, might motivate or not motivate people to action. Uh, this is something that he's clearly, clearly talking right, about. Right, right, right. And, and fear is um, one, you know, is inevitably um, front and center in the toolkit of the authoritarian. And, and the dictator. Right, because fear does not turn people to action. But he said something very important. He attributes it to Walensky. You could actually even attribute it to Aristotle, and that is anger without hope mm-hmm. is not particularly mobilized. Or, or it doesn't it leads to action but not to any um, constructive well, it necessarily action. even lead to action. Well, it can, it can lead to riots, right? Yes. Okay. It can, right. it, it can it can lead to riots, but without the hope, it's not going to lead into really effective. It's, it's not constructive. It's not going to lead you into participating necessarily and think that what I'm going to do is important. I mean, another way of thinking about it is, you know, hope is an emotional response, but a more uh, cognitive uh, response might be uh, efficacy. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, without the sense that I personally can make a difference. My anger is not necessarily going to turn into any kind of any kind of Absolutely. action. And, and it speaks actually to something else that he says is important for all protests uh, and that we've seen here. And that is the need for leadership mm-hmm. and effective leadership. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, he wouldn't be the first to talk about how occupation uh, Occupy Wall Street, uh, you know, which had its moment in the sun and spread to quite a few places. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's it's lack of leadership probably assisted in bringing it to an end. Well, and, and that, and I, I mean, was, their, 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 their fervent <laughs> lack of leadership, mm-hmm, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, oh, no, they saw leadership point. as, mm-hmm. as part of the problem. Right. And, you know, and I was actually, when I was listening to him, was thinking about the, the yellow vest movement and how, guys, how long are you going to be able to sustain this weekly protest without saying exactly kind of what you want and who's in charge and what's next? I mean, it does strike me that, that, he is right to be thinking, to be, you know, looking at history as a way of finding out, well, when protests work, these are the features that are common to them. And when protests kind of flash in the pan, these are the features that are common to them. And, and you know, when he was talking about flash in the pan, I did think to, to, my mind did move to the yellow vest. That's why you need leadership. I right. mean, you can't really blame people for getting involved in protests because they feel aggrieved. Of course. And you can't really expect them to have the necessarily the answers to what they're 
what they're grieving about, mm-hmm. to, um, to what their grievances are, right. to what it is that's upsetting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has to be the responsibility of leadership to come up with. Right. And, 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 and to come up with, you know, within the pow- circles of power, within the institutions where you can actually then make a difference. Something which he understands because that's exactly what he's tried to do. So, so I mean, this book is really funny and the stories are really funny, but it's also a, um, a very deliberate, thoughtful, strategic, and, and um, well, hard-headed. Comes, comes right? through in the interview. Too. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so, um, the, it, you know, it is kind of the new generation of Saul Alinsky, and, you know, the world is better for it. So, so probably a good note to end on. Uh, I'm Michael Berkman. Uh, I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.